Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm from that one one. We're through emergency. Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one one in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little Cherub of face, cherub of face, little boy who would do, who would do, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, uh, Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. This is part two of Beefcake and Bullets, the Chippendales murder. If you haven't listened to part one and you want any of this to make sense, we suggest you push stop and go back and listen to episode 168. Steve Banerjee had gone from rags to riches by creating the male erotic dance troupe, The Chippendales, but he didn't do it alone. Emmy award-winning television producer and Broadway choreographer Nick DeNoia gave The Chippendales routines the glitz and glamour that made them world famous. But Steve, not adverse to acts of crimes to retain his power, had a falling out with Denoya and called on his right-hand man and crappy doer of cheeky arsons, Ray Cologne, to organise a hit on the unsuspecting Nick Denoya. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. They really are wonderful. And generous. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our astoundingly brilliant and critically lauded first season... (laughs) (laughs) and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive patron-only episodes. And we'll have another one coming out in the next couple of days. Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. We're still in lockdown and recording separately because that's just how it is. 
We've changed up the order of how we do things a bit in this episode. For True Crime Nerd Time, Tara interviewed podcaster and author Paul Verhoeven about his true crime books, Loose Units, and his latest release, Electric Blue. It was great talking to Paul. He's got a lot of interesting revelations to make about his books, and the interview goes for around 20 minutes. So we've moved True Crime Nerd Time to after we finish telling you about the Chippendales murder. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. In part one, we learned of the rise of Steve Banerjee and his thrusting empire of man-made, the Chippendales. We also learned of Steve's all-consuming greed, which motivated him to employ a dodgy dude named Ray Cologne to burn down his competition, albeit unsuccessfully and in the most comical and stupid way. Ah, big balls and tiny brains. Oh, yes, they were a great team. After Steve hired choreographer Nick DeNoyer to take the Chippendales to the next level, a struggle for power ensued. Steve eventually reneged and gave Denoya 50% of the Chippendales touring profits. Denoya had also created a rival dance troupe called US Male. Yeah, that's M-A-L-E. Ooh. US Male. They deliver sexy mm-hmm. or something like that. They deliver the sexy. Woo! That's right. Feeling control of his G-string clad empire slipping away from his sweaty mitts, Steve called Ray into his office and asked him to do the ultimate. Ray whispered to Steve, You want me to kill Nick DeNoyer? Steve narrowed his eyes and he nodded and said yes. Ray told Steve he was crazy and got up to leave, but the Chippendales owner grabbed his arm and told him to sit down and listen. He explained to the bewildered Ray, there's no other way. He's bleeding me and he won't stop until he's sucked me dry. (laughs) Ray raised an eyebrow at this turn of phrase and thought about the long lines of women queuing up around the block to get into Chippendales every night. He wondered how Steve could be so stupid. He had all the success in the world and he just couldn't see it. Steve went on to tell Ray that right now Denoy was probably sitting in his office in New York doing the same thing. What? Being a whiny, greedy cunt, replied Ray. No, said Steve, organising a hit on me. Surely you must know someone from your policing days that would be willing to kill their own mother for the right price. Ray was dumbfounded and just shook his head. Steve told him if he found the right person to do the job, he would never bother him again. He also offered to buy Ray a house. Before Ray could answer, Steve passed him an envelope with $3,000 in it and a note with Nick DeNoy's home and business addresses. He then told Ray to go to New York to see if it could be done. Ray tried to decline, but before he could, Steve pushed him out the door. According to Deadly Dance, The Chippendales Murders by K. Scott MacDonald, Ray thought to himself as he got in his car, I already have a house, but who couldn't do with another one? Three weeks later, Ray was loitering outside a Burger King in Manhattan and trying to figure out how it had come this far. Ray sucked down hard on the remainder of his Diet Coke and said out loud, What the fuck am I doing here? A wizened old woman walking past heard him and was going to answer, but thought better of it. Ray looked across the road on West 40th Street up to the building that contained Nick DeNoyer's office and frowned. Ray had told his wife Barbara that the trip to New York was for business. He'd even brought Barbara and his mother along, staying at his sister's house in Long Island. He told them he was there to produce a record. More like a criminal record. Ooh, bam. Ray had already checked out Nick DeNoyer's three-bedroom flat in Midtown Manhattan, which was above a restaurant and across the street from the fancy La Triumph building. Funny thing is, DeNoyer had moved three months beforehand across the Hudson River to New Jersey. 
Ray had been intently watching an empty apartment, devoid of Nick DeNoya or anybody at all. Unfortunately for DeNoya, the office address Steve had for him, much like Barney's moustache, was still correct. My moustache is correct. Yep. It's true. Back in LA, Steve was worried. He didn't trust Ray to get the job done. After all, Ray had bungled all of the ridiculous arson attempts we spoke about in the last episode. Steve had Ray call him from payphones every day to give him updates. After 10 days of reconnaissance, which was really just a family vacation for Ray, he flew back to Los Angeles and reported to Steve. According to Deadly Dance, the Chippendales murders, they met for a late lunch at a restaurant called Izzy's in Santa Monica. They took a back booth in the empty steakhouse to ensure their murderous scheming had the appropriate privacy. Ray munched on a ham and cheese sandwich while Steve continued to whine about his business woes and how it was all that bastard DeNoyer's fault. Ironically enough, DeNoyer was actually making Steve money by organising Chippendale's tours, but that's not how Steve chose to see it. I know, right? It's really ridiculous. Eventually, Ray told Steve that he'd have to return to New York to organise the hit and that it would cost more money, thinking that this may deter the penny-pinching lord of muscled-up man-thrusting. Ray was wrong. It did not deter him, and he answered with, Whatever it takes. Steve warned Ray to never call him at his office and told him that the fewer people who saw them together, the better. When Ray asked how they would keep in contact, Steve said that if he must call him, use the codename Babe. What, like that funny piglet who rounds up the sheep, asked Ray. No, he didn't say that. What? No, Babe who used to work at the Chippendales, yelled Steve, who realised he was being rowdy and looked both ways before saying in a whisper, The real Babe guy calls Chippendales sometimes, so it won't seem suspicious. Ray nodded and showed he understood by saying, That'll do, pig. A few weeks later, Ray flew back to New York to again scope out the empty apartment where Denoy used to live and the office where he worked. Steve was not happy. Why is this taking so long? He yelled at Ray. If it wasn't done soon, Steve told Ray he would get someone to whack him and he knew someone in the mafia. Ray asked why not get this mob contact to kill Denoy instead, but Ray already knew the answer and so did Steve. If he involved the mob, they would blackmail him and before long they would own Chippendales and run it into the ground. Steve also reminded Ray in no uncertain terms of the $7,000 he owed him for the botched arsons. Ray promised Steve he was on it and left. In the next few weeks, Ray racked his brain trying to think of someone to do the hit. Meanwhile, Steve phoned his house several times a day to hurry him up using every curse word in English he knew, then going into a few choice harsh swears in his native language Hindi. If Ray's wife Barbara answered the phone, he hung up. Eventually Ray came up with a potential candidate to kill Nick DeNoyer. While Ray had been managing the Overland Palm Apartments, he had rented a dumpy one-bedroom to a southern lad by the name of Errol Lynn Bressler, who went by the nickname of Strawberry on account of his reddish-blonde hair. Strawberry was a bit of a drifter. He'd worked on oil rigs in Texas and as a mechanic at various truck stops in the desert around Las Vegas. Ray thought the redneck Strawberry was dodgy and he was right. Strawberry was infatuated with guns and spent hours listening to a police scanner whilst drinking copious amounts of beer. Much like yourself, Barney. That's true. Strawberry had told Ray that he'd worked as an informant for the DEA and FBI. 
This really should have rung alarm bells for Ray. Ray thought Strawberry was full of shit, but Ray's friend Leon Dufina liked him and they hung out a bit. If Leon vouched for him, that was good enough for Ray. Strawberry was thrilled to get a call from Ray, as he'd always thought he was a pretty cool guy. Ray told him he had a job for him and to call back from a payphone. Ten minutes later, Ray told Strawberry his friend wanted the ultimate performed on a guy. The rusty trombone? Strawberry asked. What? No, the other thing, replied Ray. Strawberry seemed to understand and said, Sure, I'm up for it. Who is it and who ordered the hit? Ray told him he would never know either of those things. He would just be told where and when and then get paid. Strawberry said okay, but they'd need a wheelman and he had someone in mind. Days later, Strawberry called Ray back and told him that his wheelman was unavailable and he wouldn't do it on his own. He was out. Damn, thought Ray. He was this close to getting Steve off his back. In the days that followed, Steve resumed his curse-laden phone calls to Ray. Ray was now desperate. After hours of scratching his head and possibly his balls, he had an epiphany. Gilbert Riviera Louis Lopez. Hmm, that name sounds familiar. It should. Hispanic Louis was a $300 a day heroin addict that had assisted Ray in the failed arson attempt at the Pearl Harbor Club, which we mentioned in part one. Problem was, Ray had no idea how to contact Louis. Ray thought his best bet was to drive along the East LA Barrio. After days of searching, on April 5th, 1987, Ray spotted Louis strolling down Vermont Avenue. Ray honked to get Louis' attention and pulled over. Louis recognised Ray. He smiled and jumped into his car. Ray told him he had a job for him. They drove to a hole-in-the-wall Mexican restaurant to discuss it. While Louis inserted taco after taco into his greedy mouth, he told Ray he was still pissed he didn't see any cash from the last job. Ray assured him this was big money and he would definitely get paid. Ray leaned in and half-whispered to Louis that his friend wanted the ultimate performed on a guy. The wheelbarrow down the stairs? A surprise, Louis asked. What? No, the other thing, replied Ray. <laughs> Louis, who had inserted another taco into his mouth, made a gun with his fingers and put it to his head and pulled the trigger. Yes, that thing, Ray said. Um, okay, this isn't a mob thing, is it? Louis asked, with taco bits falling out of his mouth. Ray passed him a napkin and said, no way. Louis explained that he wouldn't do it if it was a mafia thing, as they would most likely kill him after the hit was completed. Ray assured Louis the only person who knew he was the assassin would be him. Ray told him if he said yes, they would fly to New York the next day to do the deadly deed. He would supply the tickets and the guns. Louis inquired about remuneration. Well, that doesn't sound like a very Louis way of speaking. He asked how much he was going to get paid. My good sir, before we have an accord, may I inquire of the remuneration of such a contract? He could have said that. I highly doubt it. Ray told Louis it was up to him to set the price. Louis narrowed his eyes and then inserted another taco in his mouth. Rain bribe he blurted out. Huh? said Ray. Louis did a big swallow of food, gulp, and said 25,000. The following day, Ray called Steve. He was hoping the naggy cheapskate would be deterred by the price, but Steve did not hesitate and said, do it. According to Deadly Dance, The Chippendales Murders, on Monday, April 7th, 1987, Ray pulled out his battered suitcase from his closet, threw some clothes in it, and then tossed in a 9mm handgun. Ray tucked the plane tickets into his jacket pocket. He'd asked Louis to choose an alias for his ticket. Louis chose Louis Malacada. 
Of course he did. It's the most common surname in America. Oh, in the whole world, I believe. Ray then drove out to Louis's crib to pick him up. He gave him his ticket and they headed towards LAX. Louis looked at his ticket perplexed and then shoved it in his pocket and told Ray that they'd need to stop for some heroin as he didn't know anyone in New York. Three days worth should do, he said. Really? replied Ray. Do you want me to freak out? asked Louis. Ray frowned and drove him to his dealer where Louis scored. Back in the car, Louis asked if they could get something to eat before the flight. That was when Ray realised that Louis had never been on a plane before. He assured Louis that the airline would feed him. Louis seemed surprised by that. As these were the days before 9-11, Ray's 9mm handgun packed in his suitcase avoided the metal detectors as domestic baggage was rarely checked. On the plane, Louis quickly wolfed down his meal and then slept throughout the duration of the flight. Ray stayed awake the whole time, thinking about the events that were about to unfold. On the morning of Tuesday, April 7th, they touched down at Long Island MacArthur Airport. Louis and Ray disembarked separately. Ray rented a car after retrieving his suitcase. He picked up Louis out the front and headed down the Long Island Expressway. As they approached the grey, jagged skyline of Manhattan, Ray told Louis to turn his head so the toll booth dude could not see his face. From Queens, they entered via the tunnel into Manhattan. Louis grinned like an idiot and looked up in wonder at the tall buildings. Whoa, look at those! Oh, they're so pretty! Uh, If this was an 80s romantic comedy movie, uh, it would be a delightful montage set to something like Taken Care of Business by Buckman Turner Overdrive. (laughs) I can see it now. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Louis jumped out at the first liquor store he saw, coming back a few minutes later with a large bottle of red wine in a brown paper bag. After a few swigs, he offered the bottle to Ray, who declined. Let's just do this thing, all right, he told Louis. Can we get something to eat first, the junkie replied. Ray said fine, and they crawled through the heavy traffic until they reached the Burger King a block away from Nick Denoyer's office. Across the street was the enormous Port Authority bus station, where over the years thousands of starry-eyed young men and women have been dropped off, full of hope, battered suitcase in hand, only to have their dreams of stardom crushed shortly afterwards. Louis had a double cheeseburger and two bites and then said to Ray, I'm going to shoot up in the bathroom, before wiping his mouth on his sleeve. Ray, looking disgusted, said, What the fuck did you just say? I'm going to shoot up in the bathroom, Louis replied too loudly. Ray looked around. Nobody seemed to care. He looked back at Louis, but he was gone, already heading towards his white horse destiny, soda in hand. Whackety-smackety, you mean? I was trying to be poetic. I shall look forward to your book of poetry. Knowing you, it'll mostly be about bums. Ray waited out the front of the Burger King. A few minutes later, a more frenetic, antsy Louis appeared, higher than the Chrysler building. He sucked down hard on his soda and grinned at Ray. They walked across the street to a payphone. Ray rang the number of the New York Chippendales office. He told the man who answered the phone that he was a dancer and wanted to audition. Hey, baby, I'm a dancer. The man said, come up to the office at 4.30 that afternoon. Ray agreed and then asked who he was talking to. The man said, this is Nick DeNoyer. Ray and Louie walked back to their car. Ray opened the trunk, unlocked the suitcase, took out the 9mm handgun and passed it to his high-as-fuck hitman. Louie said, oh, it's heavy, and then tucked the pistol into the waistband of the back of his pants and pulled his shirt over it. Mind you don't shoot yourself in the arse, warned Ray. Louis just grinned and had another suck of his Burger King soda. 
Paper cups still in hand, Louis walked across the street to 265 West 40th Street. Entering the foyer, he took the elevator to the 15th floor. The doors slid open and with his hand on the 9mm in the back of his pants, Louis strolled down the hall to the left into the Chippendales office. An associate of Nick DeNoyer's, William Mott, sat at his desk. Mott shared the office with a Chippendales choreographer. According to an article on Medium.com called The Real Chippendales Murder Mystery by Audra Vi Novak, they were old friends who'd known each other for 27 years. Are you Nick? Louis asked Mott. Busy with work, Mott didn't look up and said, no, he's in the other office, and pointed down the hall to a door with the name Nick DeNoyer painted on the glass. Louis thanked him and said, I'll be back. Afterwards, he went down the hall to the bathroom. Mott went to DeNoyer's office and told him someone had asked for him and said that they'd be right back. After 10 minutes, Mott needed to go to the bathroom himself and was surprised to see the man who'd asked about Nick still in there, splashing water on his face like he was unwell. A Burger King soda cup was on the basin. Mott pushed past him and went into a stall and dropped trowel. Again, he didn't really see Louis's face. Moments later, Nick DeNoyer looked up from his desk as Louis entered his office. He probably thought, could this be my 4.30 appointment? He's an hour early and he doesn't look like much of a dancer. Are you Nick DeNoyer? The man asked. Yes, DeNoyer replied. You're a dead man, Louis yelled as he pulled out the 9mm handgun, levels it at DeNoyer's head and pulled the trigger. The bullet pierced DeNoyer's face just below his left eye. William Mott, still in the bathroom, heard a loud crack followed by the slam of the stairwell door and running down the stairs. Mott pulled up his trousers and ran to DeNoyer's office, finding him lying on the floor, blood spurting out of his face like a fountain. Mott called 911, but it was too late. Nick DeNoyer was dead and his assassin was in the wind. Louis ran down the stairs three steps at a time. Just before he hit the front entrance, he slowed down, took a long deep breath and straightened himself up. On the street, he mingled into the crowded pavement, walked casually to the car and jumped in. Let's go, it's done, he panted at Ray. It's done, Ray asked him. It's done, Holmes. He's dead, let's go, replied Louis. Ray pulled into traffic and headed towards Queens. Before long, Ray could hear gentle snoring. His sleepy little assassin was on the nod. Ray dropped Louis off at a cheap motel in Queens. As he got out of the car, he told Ray some dude had seen him in the shitter, but he was pretty sure he didn't get a good look at him. Ray hoped he was right. Louis asked when they were going home, as he had almost run out of heroin. Ray told him tomorrow morning. The next day, newspapers around the country reported on the murder of Emmy Award winner and Chippendales choreographer Nick DeNoyer. The DeNoyer family knew his murder had something to do with the Chippendales and that Steve Banerjee was definitely behind it. When Ray arrived at the Queen's Motel the next day to pick up Louis, he found him surrounded by newspapers containing stories about Nick DeNoyer's murder. Louis excitedly explained to Ray that he wanted to take them home as souvenirs and said that if he'd known he was going to kill such a famous dude, he would have asked for $200,000. Ray told him he was a fucking idiot, tore up the newspapers and advised him to go get in the car. They touched down in LA at 9.30pm that night and immediately went to meet Steve at an A-framed International House of Pancakes in West LA. Ray told Louis to wait in the car. 
Inside, Steve was nervous and handed Ray a brown paper bag containing $10,000 and told him he'd have the remaining $15,000 in a few days. Ray was none too thrilled about this and told Steve as much. Louis wasn't overjoyed his blood money was light either, but he said that he trusted Ray and to call him when the money came in. It's nice that Louis trusted Ray. Ray sure as fuck didn't trust Louis. After dropping Louis off at his mum's house, he took the 9mm gun to his brother-in-law Billy Barnes, who melted it down. For the next three weeks, Ray tried to get the cash off Steve, who kept ducking him. Louis, who had no way to contact Ray, was getting impatient for his payday too. He eventually began phoning Ray's sister in New York, asking for him. Ray was furious and demanded the cash from Steve. Eventually, a reluctant Steve paid out. Ray drove a cash-filled brown paper bag over to Louis's house the same day. Louis was out the front washing a brand new van. Louis looked into the bag and then high-fived Ray. See, kids? Crime really does pay. Ray looked at the drug-addled hitman with disdain and said, Nothing personal, mate, but uh, I think it'd be best if we never saw each other again. Louis at first looked disappointed and then agreed. It's business, man. Back in New York, veteran homicide detective Michael Geeds was investigating the murder of Nick Denoya, and it wasn't going well. There were no witnesses to the crime, and the people who did see the assassin really didn't get a good look at him and couldn't provide an accurate description. Robbery was clearly not the motive, as Denoy's Emmys were still on a shelf in his office, as were credit cards and cash still in his pockets. Police had a good suspect in Steve Banerjee, but he was on the other side of the country at the time of the murder, and there was no evidence that tied him to the crime. Newspapers, always clamouring for the most salacious headlines, ran with a theory of a gay love triangle gone wrong. Detective Geeds examined this ludicrous angle, but it came to nothing. The investigation had hit a wall. Steve's lawyer, Bruce Nain, thought initially Steve was behind the killing of Denoyer, but after six months had passed, he concluded he must be wrong, as the police had not even questioned Steve, let alone arrested him. Taking matters into his own hands, Bruce started a reward fund to help solve Denoyer's murder. According to an episode of Mysteries and Scandals, hundreds of people donated, including groovy crooner Barry Manilow. When Bruce asked Steve to contribute, he refused, saying of the murderer, That guy did me a favour. Denoyer got what he deserved. Ah, way to dodge suspicion, Steve. Meanwhile, Nick Denoyer's brother Val took over his share of the Chippendales, and tours, unsanctioned by the controlling Steve Banerjee, resumed. It seems Steve was right back to where he was before the Denoyer murder. But after a year of handling the rambunctious Chippendales on tour, Val Denoyer tired of it and sold it back to Steve for $1.3 million. There's only so many times you can watch a screaming woman get teabagged, i got to say. <laughs> what, 12? Uh, I'm going with once, personally, but, uh, you know. <laughs> Steve now had total control over his empire of all-up teabagging beefcake. It wasn't all beer and Skittles for Steve. His original club, Chippendales, after years of litigation, finally lost its liquor licence and was later shut down for overcrowding violations. The once Church of Dick was turned into a preschool and daycare centre. It didn't matter. The Chippendales' special brand of grinding man meat was still going gangbusters. Steve had multiple clubs in multiple cities and touring was bringing in the big bucks, all of which fell into Steve's greedy little hands. 
1990, a company by the name of Class Promotions formed a rival doodle-thrusting dance troupe named Adonis, Men of Hollywood. The touring company of waxed and gym-honed strippers included some ex-Chippendales, dancer Phil Baroni, creative director Reed Scott, MC Steve Wright and choreographer Mike Fullerton. Steve saw this as a personal attack. He stomped his feet, punched a wall and went red in the face, much like a toddler who was denied a second bowl of chocolate ice cream. Steve tried to squash Adonis Men of Hollywood by legal means but failed. It had been four years since the murder of Nick DeNoyer and it seemed to Steve that he'd gotten away with it. So he thought, why not solve this problem like he'd done in the past? He got in contact with his old mate Ray Cologne and told him he wanted all of them dead, especially that bastard choreographer Mike Fullington. Man, Steve Banerjee really hates choreographers, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he does. I guess he's like a diehard fan of improvisational dancing. Just go where the music takes you, man. I agree. <laughs> now, Ray didn't think Steve was serious until he passed him an envelope containing $7,000 and an address in West Hollywood. Ray said, I don't even know what this Fullington looks like. Steve said, and I am quoting from the book Deadly Dance, The Chippendales Murder, he looks like some faggot dancer and he drives a blue Jeep with zebra pattern seat covers. Ray said, okay, and immediately thought of his favourite alcoholic, messy eater and heroin-hungry hitman, Louis Lopez. Ray drove over to his duplex in East LA, but much to his disappointment, Louis's brother, who we'll call Miguel, told him Louis had been deported back to Mexico courtesy of the INS. Miguel looked a lot like Louis, and like Louis, Miguel liked more than a little bit of heroin. Miguel told Ray he knew all about the Denoya killing and that his brother had told him everything. This deeply concerned Ray. Yeah, well, it would. <laughs> Miguel offered his services to Ray. He said anything his brother did for him, he could do better. Ooh. Ooh. Ray looked at the skinny junkie with the shaking hands and red eyes and said, no thanks. He shook his hand and left. That night, the abusive phone calls from Steve began again. Steve yelled at Ray, do the hit on Fullington or you will be the one that gets whacked. After a week of this, Ray went back to Miguel Lopez. The next night, Ray and Miguel were out the front of Fullington's West Hollywood flat with eyes on his Jeep with a zebra pattern seat covers. After an hour, Fullington came out of his apartment and walked towards his car. Miguel, 32 pistol in hand, approached him. Just as he started to raise the gun, Ray spotted a person walking their dog across the street. Ray grabbed Miguel and said, Not now. Fullington got into his Jeep and drove away, not knowing how close he had come to death. The next day, Steve called Ray in and asked why Fullington was on his way to Canada. Ray tried to explain what had happened the previous night, but Steve cut him off saying, no matter, you and your hitman need to go to Canada and finish the job. He gave Ray travelling expenses and locations where the Adonis Men of Hollywood troupe would be performing in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He told Ray he'd received $25,000 to kill Mike Fullington and another twenty-five dollars to end the life of Adonis's creative director, Reed Scott. Ray decided to ditch Miguel Lopez and enlisted the help of his brother-in-law, Billy Barnes. But in a series of comical events, including being stopped by border police, oversleeping and going to the wrong address, they missed both of their targets before they flew to England on their tour. Steve was furious, but then told Ray to forget about Fullington. The prick's got AIDS, he told Ray with a giggle in his voice. 
Mike Fullington died later that year. Steve added another name to his hit list, former Chippendale Steve White. He then told Ray to murder another of the Adonis men of Hollywood dancers. He didn't care who, hitman's choice, and he'd give Ray $100,000 for the three killings. Ray sent Billy Barnes to England to follow the Adonis dance troupe on tour and to report back. Billy spent a week trying to find them but failed. But he did find out that they'd be appearing in Blackpool in three weeks' time. Ray rubbed the back of his neck in despair. Billy had a simple job and it fucked it up big time. We'll be back with a conclusion of Beefcake and Bullets, the Chippendales murder. Ah. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. After this. I'm Matt Johnson, boots on the ground reporter and host of True Crime Deadline, the award-winning podcast back for season two. Hi, I'm Carrie Rossman, and I'm the daughter of the BTK serial killer. My name is Chris Pedretti, and I am a survivor of the Golden State Killer. Each week, we dive into a new crime and give you new details you won't hear anywhere else. They're saying this is a suicide. That's bullshit. What is your message to the person responsible? I hope that you know that we're going to catch you. Season two has everything from the Tiger King case. I don't know if Carol Baskin pulled the trigger or committed the the murder of Don Lewis. To the one case I have never really opened up about. Until now, I was witness to a state execution of a convicted killer. And Lawrence Caldwell had it in his mind that he was going to kill this person. He just wanted to know what it was like. So if you like true crime, hit subscribe and join me each week. Buckle up, investigators. You're on Deadline. More information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. Now, Barney. Yes, Tara. Is it always going to be 2020? Well, it certainly feels like that, doesn't it? Yes. Is everything going on in the world at the moment and the way this year is panning out, interfering with your ability to be happy? Is something stopping you from achieving your goals? Have you had about as much as you can take and you're just not sure what to do about it? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. And you can communicate with your counsellor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to leave the house. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as trauma, anger, grief and self-esteem, as well as sleeping problems and relationship issues. 
Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional, and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. If you don't believe us, check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's better, H-E-L-P.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of Beefcake and Bullets, the Chippendales murder. Ray racked his brains for a replacement hitman and came up with Errol Lynn Bressler affectionately known as Strawberry. Remember him? Oh yeah, the hillbilly who was infatuated with guns. That's right. Ray knew Strawberry from the Overland Palm Apartments. He was originally lined up for the Denoyer hit but ended up passing on it. It was a stinking hot day in early July 1991 when Ray dropped in on Strawberry. It had been four years since seeing each other and time had not been kind to Strawberry. He had lost a few more front teeth and his alcoholism had given him a sickly yellow complexion. Ray asked him if he was interested in a job. It would be much like the work he'd offered him back in 1987. Strawby grinned and said in his southern drawl, Fuck yeah! Ray explained that this time there would be three targets and that each one was in England. Strawby asked what weapon to use, saying there was no way they could smuggle a gun into the UK. Ray agreed and had already given this much thought. He had decided on poison and already had in his possession a substantial amount of potassium cyanide. Ray had been having an ongoing battle with gophers in his garden and had been trying to poison the little fuckers. The cyanide would be small and easy to conceal in a bottle that had originally contained eye drops, Ray explained to Strawberry. The plan was to get each target on their own, hit them on the head with the claw hammer and then stick them with the cyanide-filled syringe. Oh, it was that simple, was it? It was. (laughs) (laughs) Dude... The Adonis dance troupe was scheduled to play at the seaside resort of Winter Gardens in Blackpool. This would be where the traitors, as Steve called them, would get got. The next day, Strawberry dyed his reddish blonde hair black and boarded a flight to England. A week later, Ray had not heard from Strawberry and was starting to worry. Finally, on July 21st, 1991, Ray's phone rang at about three in the afternoon. It was Strawberry. Ray asked where the fuck had he been and why hadn't he phoned him? Strawberry told Ray that he was in Blackpool and it had taken him a while to track down the man-meat peddlers, but now he had them in his sights. Woo! After about 20 minutes of discussing the murders, Strawberry suggested that he cut the throats of the targets after injecting them, just to be sure. Ray said sure, whatever, and told him to just get it done and hung up. Ray had a strange feeling after talking to Strawberry, but dismissed it as just nerves. Ray should have trusted his instincts. Strawberry was not in Blackpool. He wasn't even in England. He was back in the US. After arriving in England, Strawberry had checked into a B&B near Heathrow Airport and for some reason thought better of killing three people. He rang his contact at the DEA in Miami, who he had informed to in the past and told him everything. The next day he flew back to LA. The DEA contacted the FBI, who put wiretaps on Ray's phone. Ray's goose was definitely cooked. Four days later, FBI agents kicked in Ray's front door. Ray was in his underwear eating Cheetos and watching the TV show Cops. (laughs) 
that's actually the perfect time for such a thing to occur. After searching his house, they found illegal handguns and $64,000 in cash, which Ray and his wise guy mate, Leon Defina, had stolen from a drug dealer. The FBI agents also found in Ray's garage his stash of cyanide, 46 grams of the stuff, enough to kill 2,300 people. Uh, how many gophers worth is that? None. Not a single gopher fell prey to Ray's attempts at poisoning them. Ray was arrested and was told he was facing 15 years in prison for the murder conspiracy. But if he told them everything, a deal could be worked out. At first, Ray told the FBI to get fucked. He would not turn dog. But the more he thought about it, the more he thought he shouldn't go down for that money-grabbing bastard Steve Banerjee, who had threatened to kill him on more than one occasion. Ray agreed to wear a wire to try and implicate Steve in not only the Blackpool murder conspiracy, but also the killing of Nick DeNoyer. It wouldn't be easy. Steve soon learned of Ray's arrest and was surprised Ray was out on bail. Before Ray was released, he ran into his old wise guy mentor, Rocky DeLamo. Remember him? Yep. Ray told him his problems and the trouble that Steve had gotten him into. Rocky agreed with Ray, saying, Fuck him, get yourself a deal and turn in that Banerjee cunt. Now Rocky knew of Steve's predicament, in the coming years, the Mafia hood would blackmail Steve for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yay. <laughs> it serves him right, that's for sure. After getting out, Ray tried to organise a meeting with Steve, but the Chippendale's owner refused to see him. After months of trying to contact Steve, in June 1992, the FBI wired up Ray Cologne and sent him to Steve's office. As Steve pulled into the car park opposite his building, Ray jumped out of his car and walked towards his old boss. The shocked Steve spotted him and held his briefcase to his chest. Ray said, relax, I only want to talk a minute. Steve replied, I know you're working for the government. Ray said, I'm not. Don't you think they would have arrested you by now if I was? I suppose so, said Steve in a whisper. He looked Ray up and down, scanning him for a wire. Ray noticed this, put his arms in the air and said, You think I'm wearing a wire? Search me if you want. A slight crackle was heard by the FBI agents listening in a van parked down the street. Steve shook his head and said, No, that's okay. Look, Steve, I'm going to jump bail and leave the country. I need some money, like lots of it. I need to get a fake passport and I know a guy who can get it for me. Call me in a few days and we'll work something out, replied Steve. A couple of days later, Steve gave Ray $14,000 and promised him more when he left the country. This did incriminate Steve somewhat, but the FBI needed much more. Ray assured them that when Steve felt comfortable, he would talk. With that, the FBI organised a fake passport for Ray. A few weeks later, Ray, escorted by two FBI agents, left the US for a new life in Rome, Italy. Ray was only there for a week when Steve arrived at his hotel with more cash for him. Still thinking Ray could possibly be an informant, he communicated to Ray in post-it notes, passing answers to Ray's questions, then taking the notes back and tearing them up into tiny pieces. Ray told him he was being fucking stupid because nobody was listening. But Steve was right. The FBI, working in conjunction with Italian police, were listening through multiple microphones planted in the room, monitoring the one-sided conversation in the hotel suite next door. Eventually, Steve blurted out, I'll meet you in Zurich next week. There we can talk openly. The FBI agents were gutted. 
It had taken weeks to organise the operation with Italian authorities. They had a week to contact their Swiss counterparts and develop another sting. The next day, FBI agents flew to Zurich and got real busy. A week later, as agreed, Steve met Ray in Zurich. It was February 10th, 1993. Ray wore a fake moustache. After all, he had jumped bail and was a wanted man. Well, he was in Steve Banerjee's eyes anyway. (laughs) Steve met Ray in his hotel room. Your moustache is falling off, Steve said with a giggle. Ray peeled it off and put it in his pocket. Steve asked Ray if he could search him for a wire. Ray agreed and Steve made him strip. Please tell me he queued up You Can Leave Your Hat On by Joe Cocker beforehand. I was thinking more of KC and the Sunshine Band. Baby, give it up. Satisfied, he told Ray to put his clothes back on and added, The fucking FBI are probably right in the next room. He was kind of right. In fact, the FBI and Swiss detectives were both in adjoining rooms. Ray started by asking Steve for more money, telling him his plan was to go to Spain before settling in Australia. Steve said, sure, sure, before asking him if he had got rid of the gun that was used to kill Denoyer. Ray told him it had been melted down. Steve then quizzed his good friend Ray if there was anything to implicate him in the murder of his Emmy award-winning former business partner. It's all good, Steve, Ray told him. For the next two hours, the pair discussed every detail of the hit and then moved on to discussing the botched murders in Blackpool. Scheming Steve didn't know it yet, but he was done. In two adjoining rooms, Swiss police and FBI agents high-fived each other. (laughs) There's a lot of high-fiving in this this episode. Before leaving, Steve told Ray if he felt the police were closing in on him, he would leave the country. What about your wife and kids, Ray asked. Yeah, I'll miss them, but I'll get a new wife and kids. If I can't leave the country, I will kill myself, he replied. Steve returned to the US a couple of days later. On September 2nd, 1993, Steve Banerjee was arrested outside his office after he got out of his Mercedes. Steve went pale and started shaking. He was charged with one count of murder and three counts of attempted murder. Bail was denied. A trial date was set for June 14th, 1994. Steve, now locked in a concrete box, was not doing well. Everyone knew he was the multi-millionaire owner of the Chippendales. He got beat up almost every day. When he called his wife, he wept. In fact, sobbing was all he did in prison. Other inmates considered him a bit of a pompous ass and a crybaby. Much like yourself, Barney. <laughs> Much like yourself, Barney. <laughs> Steve made one friend, a so-called connected wise guy named Jack Rubenstein. Steve offered Rubenstein $200,000 for his crew to kill his old mate, now his worst enemy, Ray Cologne. Jack Rubenstein was not connected, nor was he a wise guy. He was just in the habit of grassing on other prisoners to get better privileges like cigarettes and more TV time. He described Steve to authorities as a loaded, whiny little fuck. This lark got Steve another attempted murder charge. Steve was backed into a corner and told his lawyers that he was willing to make a deal. As usual, Steve thought that he could buy his way out. The trial was expected to cost over a million dollars and prosecutors, although they had a strong case against Steve, agreed to his guilty plea of the lesser charge of second-degree murder for Nick DeNoyer, two attempted arsons and charges under the RICO statute as the Chippendales was considered a criminal organisation. Steve would forfeit all his interest in the Chippendales, which the previous year had grossed $18 million. 
He'd also be fined $500,000 and served 26 years in prison without the possibility of parole. After his release, he would be 74 years old and would be deported back to India. The US government would own the Chippendales and would now be in the business of male stripping. That is so weird. A government-run empire of man meat. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sentencing was set for October 24th, 1994. The night before, Steve had a visit from his wife, Irene. He told her it was over and to take care of the children. The morning of his sentencing, Steve Banerjee was found dead in his cell. He had hanged himself with a bed sheet. He was 48 years old. Because sentencing was not completed, the US government was unable to take control of the Chippendales. Aww. Aww. <laughs> the whole empire of thrusting man meat was willed to Steve's wife, Irene. Steve Banerjee's last fuck you to the world. One year later, Irene sold the Chippendales for $3 million with a clause that she received $100,000 a year for the next 25 years. Jeez, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I would like that, please. Uh, where do we sign up? Ray Cologne received 30 months in a federal prison for his role. So that was much reduced because of the help he gave to the Well, FBI. yeah, it was going to be 15 years, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Nick DeNoy's killer, Louis Lopez, got 25 years. The Chippendales has been bought and sold several times today and still earns millions of dollars. Annually, the men of Chippendales are seen by almost 2 million people worldwide, performing in more than 25 cities in the US, 23 cities in Central and South America, 60 European cities, 4 Asian countries and 8 South African cities. They're still going strong. Wow, what a story. I mean, honestly, it kind of doesn't sound like it could be real. It sounds like fiction. It's just, it's too ridiculous, it's, you it's know. It's too nuts, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I'm really glad that there were a lot of murders that were planned that, that didn't end up getting done because he would have left quite a body count in his wake, Steve Banerjee, like given half the chance. Oh, absolutely. So, Barney, I have but one question. Yes, Tara? What time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. Hey! True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Tara Sarabin. Woo! And she did an interview earlier this week with author Paul Verhoeven of the Loose Units podcast. Now let's hear it. Today I'm chatting with writer, true crime podcaster and owner of a majestic moustache, Paul Verhoeven, about his new true crime book, Loose Units Electric Blue. How are you going, Paul? Really, really good. Uh, Electric Blue has been eating my life lately. It's just been all I've been thinking about. And given that I've been trying to release a book during lockdown, uh, mm -hmm. I have had no excuses. I've had to just completely focus on it. In fact, um, when lockdown started... What was it, 400 years ago? 450, um, Paul. Yeah, so I'm sorry. I, it's important <laughs> to be accurate in the True Crime Podcast. When, when this damn thing started, I hadn't started the edit process for Electric Blue yet. So, mm -hmm. And suddenly I had, the, I had no excuse. I was trapped in a room 
with my manuscript and I had to finish it. And suddenly Penguin were like, hey, you're turning out your work really fast. And I'm like, yeah, of course I am. There's like a pandemic. What, I can't go outside. And <laughs> so now, now it's come out. We did a book launch online. We've been doing you know, live events with libraries online. And let me tell you something. Oh, cool. There is no substitute for getting into a room full of true crime fans to, to get them to sign your book. Like it's just not been the same. So it's really nice to be able to chat and actually talk about it because I'm going crazy. Well, before we talk more about your latest book, would you like to jump back in time to the evolution of your first book, Loose Units, and the accompanying podcast for those not already in the know? Oh, sure. Yeah. So my dad was a cop in the 1980s, um, in the very, very early 80s. And in his early 20s, he joined up at the police academy and ended up stationed at North Sydney Police Station. And he... God, all this insane stuff happened to him. You know, he was working at the same time as Roger Rogerson and he was involved in car chases and bank heists and jewelry thieves and decapitations and just the craziest, craziest stuff. And when I was about seven years old, I wandered into a bunch of his old case files and saw a bunch of big black and white glossy photographs of a crime scene and effectively had recurring nightmares for the next, well, I haven't really stopped having nightmares. (laughs) And a couple of years back, I was, you know, really struggling with my career and my life and everything was sort of just getting a bit stressful and the dreams were back. And I had been referred on to go to have a chat with Penguin because I had a few pitches for books and I was throwing stuff at them. And then I just sort of went, Hey, what if I did like the princess bride with guns and car chases? Like what if I took my dad's stories of when he was a cop and we flash back you know, to him in the 80s uh, as a young man driving around and having adventures and to me and him in present day kind of talking and bantering and arguing about the cases. And Penguin said yes and the book came out and it was an absolute joy to write and it was really fun to write something based on dad's time as a, as a cop. And then we had all these amazing cases left over and um, my wife Tegan said, listen, you should probably do a podcast because you've been doing podcasts anyway and try and, you know, do some sort of tie-in. And so dad and I every week sat down and went through his case files and kept kind of expanding on the Loose Units universe. And then we did a second season, uh, which was about his time in forensics because he went into fingerprints after general duties. And then because of the success of the podcast, Penguin said yes to a second book deal, which is how Electric Blue happened, which in turn led to um, Loose Units being optioned for a TV show, which is in development right now. I heard that. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I can't, I can't, I literally cannot say anything apart from gesturing in the direction of it, but it's lovely. And it means that, you know, Loose Units as a brand has sort of become this weird, all consuming family business, sort of, you know? Yeah, well, your whole family is involved. Yeah. Um, I noticed in Electric Blue that you, you go into detail about your mother Christine's time as a cop in the 80s as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, being a female cop or a dickless Tracy, as uh, they used <laughs> to be known a long time ago, yeah. uh, that was a pretty tough gig, hey? Yeah, it was interesting because mum didn't want to make a big deal out of it. You know, she she literally said the words, oh, just, I don't want to make a fuss, which is such a mum thing to say. Whereas <laughs> dad is just, a, you know, dad was is a very eccentric guy. Mum was just sort of a background quiet achiever. At least I thought that's what happened until I got half a bottle of wine in her about six months <laughs> back. And I said, hey, mum, do you want to come and sit in the studio and maybe we can record, you know, like a mini bonus episode for Loose Units where you talk listeners through what it was like to be one of the first female cops in New South Wales. And 
like 90 minutes later, we'd done two full-length episodes, and she just wouldn't stop. She had so many stories. She was one of the first um, female officers to... I mean, she she basically campaigned to get them to be able to wear pants. She told me I can't stories. believe they had to wear pencil skirts. Yeah. That is ridiculous. And it's I crazy. understand that um, they ended up with collots, but still, that's a damn sight better than a pencil skirt when climbing a fence after a perp. Yeah, and we've all worn collots whilst chasing a perp. I know, I know, I have, and it's just that's not what the I same. Like to do. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a hipster. I wear skinny jeans, so I can't. I'm I'm not really ready for a foot chase anyway. But she was talking about these stories where she was rushing guys with shotguns and entering warehouse sieges, and you know. It was really nice getting the other side of things because mum and dad will tell the same story, the same cases, and then outright contradict each other, which is really interesting because as a true crime buff, the assumption is that everything is done with forensic detail, that you can sit there and kind of, you know, corroborate people's stories. But the thing about Loose Units and Electric Blue is I'm telling stories based on the things they did. So I know this might sound like heresy, but the details aren't always important. It's about... You know, it's about what it was like to be there and it's about kind of creating emotional resonance. I was watching um, the Stan miniseries Des last night. I just finished it uh, with David Tennant. And I wasn't familiar with the source material, but it was really nice to see that message up the front basically saying, look, all of this happened, but we've taken pretty sensational liberties to create a good story that makes you understand what it felt like, right? Um so it's been really interesting as an exercise having mum and dad, who were both cops, reading Electric Blue and going, well, that's not how it happened, but that's how it felt. Does that make sense? Oh, that's fantastic. I noticed yeah. when I was reading it that it's very visceral and it's very um, it's very emotive as well as being hilarious and, you know, just a good old action page turner. You're doing oh. a lot of things at once with it that I really appreciated as a reader. Oh, thank you. I, um, I have ADHD. Uh, which means I have zero attention span. And if I like something, I will run it at full pelt. And it was really nice whilst writing the book to have my editors over at Penguin basically, I mean, I would say, hey, can I just try an aggressive genre shift towards the end of the book? And they were like, yeah, all right, whatever we, whatever you want. I go, can I illustrate some of the book? And they said, yeah. Can I do some stuff about mum in the middle? Yeah, absolutely. It's really nice to have a publishing house on board who don't say no, or at least give their nose in a very constructive way and kind of try and channel my energy. And that's kind of my job with dad every week on Loose Units is to take this big bundle of energy who's just sort of spraying anecdotes and stories and viscera out in every direction and try and aim him at things. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's it's the job of, I think, um, of detectives at least and people who are in forensics to make sense of chaos. You know, you step under the police tape and you see all this chaos and you try and assemble it in a way that will build a watertight case or help people make sense of it when history looks back on the event. Um, and Dad's life has never been actually... It's ne he never analysed the things he did. Neither did Mum. They never sat down and actually processed this because if they did, I think they'd go slightly nuts. Because, you know, Dad, in the first Loose Units book, there's a story about Dad getting a call to Mossman train station, and it's the evening, and um, the train had hit someone. At least they thought they'd hit someone. And so dad crawls under the train and there is a woman who'd been shorn in half and she was still alive because the wheel had cauterized her down the middle and she's lying there in half and part of her head had been taken off and she was she had like 20, 30 minutes left in her and emergency services couldn't get there in time. So dad sort of lay there under the train holding half of this young woman as she died. 
And Dad's telling me this story, and it's only when he read it in the book that he actually got upset by it, because as someone who worked in the emergency services, you, you sort of can't stop to feel those things, or you won't be effective at your job. At least that's um, how he views it. So it's been sort of like therapy for Dad. Not mum, by the way. Mum's totally fine. Mum actually did process her feelings because she's a woman and she, you know, she dealt with her feelings like an adult. But dad didn't deal with it until, and he still doesn't. Sometimes we tell stories and I can see his face kind of falling as he realizes what he's saying out loud. But by that point, myself and the audience, the listeners at home, are kind of in it. And I think that's kind of why it's fun to do the show. Yeah. Well, also, um, I noticed that you mentioned the whole stub toe method. Uh, with your dad in terms of him sort of just moving on to the next thing if you want to, if you'd like to go into that and yeah. that explain like he, he doesn't really sit there kind of going well let's analyze what just happened mm. instead the stub toe method I'm gonna <laughs> something really interesting happened so dad had a whole bunch of um you know mentors throughout his time in forensics and in electric blue none of them were interesting characters dad couldn't recall any details about them he couldn't recall what they looked like what they actually said he was just like yeah i i think at some point someone said i should probably do things this way or you know so i sort of created a character out of bits and pieces of other people and put them into one character and that's a very common practice when you're creating a story based on things so dad's mentor in the book is called gray and gray is sort of a you know, like a cipher that I kind of made. To, I wanted Dad to have a mentor that I felt he probably could have benefited from back in the day. Mm -hmm. So Dad's reading this book just so confused about this character, but in the end he's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like if you add all the people I worked with up into one person and kind of take some liberties, shake it, strain it over ice, that's sort of what Gray is like. And Gray, you're right, he posits this idea of the stub-toe method where what you do is to stop yourself feeling uh, bad or traumatized about something, you just run straight up to something something else that's traumatizing and sort of stubby toe because if you stubby toe, you're thinking about the toe. You're not thinking about the thing that you were mm -hmm. thinking about before. Um, that's something I suggested to him when he asked why he wasn't getting upset by all the stories he was telling. And I said, well, it's, it's like a stub toe, Dad. It's because we keep going straight to the next story. And he's like, that's really interesting. And I go, yeah. And so I gave that anecdote, that trait, that technique to Gray and then had Gray give it to Dad back in time to see how he react. You see what I mean? It was like a writing exercise. So the, the book is really odd and really malleable and all the cases happened, but what I wanted to try and do was go, what if I was there to some degree to help dad through some of that stuff? Because, and what, you know, what if, because he helps me through a lot of things. It was really nice being able to sort of travel back in time um, and assist him on his cases a little bit. Um, that is crazy. That's some quantum leap kind of business. It really, that is a very good comparison. I am, I am the Ziggy to, to dad, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, Barney and I were lucky enough to catch your first Loose Units live show in Melbourne last year. Wow. Look, it was brilliant and so much fun. You've uh, sold out shows all over the country. What's it like touring with your dad? Uh, it depends. It depends on what kind of a mood he's in. Um, because, <laughs> Dad, I love you. Is your you. rider really huge? <laughs> uh, he does have some weird, he has weird demands, but he's like anyone else, you know, because sometimes he is a consummate professional and sometimes he's a middle-aged dad who doesn't have any media training, which is fine because that's what he is. You know, when he was a cop, he didn't have to do presses. I mean, he has gotten so good at performing. He's become so natural. Part of the charm of, no, no, I was going to say part of the charm of that Melbourne show 
was that he wasn't used to the limelight yet. And so he was just so stoked and so grateful to be, to be there. There was immediate, you know, like feedback. And then we ended up doing live shows in Bendigo and Adelaide and Brisbane and all over the place. And sometimes, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's great. But the best shows are the ones where he is surprised by the audience, where the audience actually push him and challenge him. Um, you know, where he's actually forced to interact and engage and not just in a kind of tokenistic way. The Melbourne show was great because it was up at the Toff, which is this beautiful venue, seats about 250 people. And he'd never performed before an audience before. And for the first time, and you were there, you know what this was like. For the first time, you got to see an ex-cop with a very big personality and a very big heart realize that people cared about what he had to say beyond just me. You know, and like the, the kind of the reviews on iTunes and the tweets and whatever, like the, the Facebook fans, that's nice. But having an audience of people boozed up laughing at his jokes and really happy to see him and you know, coming up to meet him afterwards was really gratifying. I hope he doesn't become an absolute monster, you know, just like let the fame go to his head. I hope he kind of keeps it in check. <laughs> but, you know, I, I honestly think that if, because emergency services workers, typically speaking, don't do what they do. And cops typically don't do what they do for accolades. They do it because they want to help people. I can't imagine what it would do for the psyches of these people who've dealt with all this trauma and saved all these lives for like decades later to sit there in front of a crowd and have people applaud them. I, I, you know, I, I think that would probably do them wonders. Yeah, probably. Mm. That being the first show, it really didn't seem as though it was. You two seemed, I mean, you're so used to doing the podcast together, I guess. But yeah, John didn't seem nervous. He didn't seem, he seemed pretty damn happy to be there. And yeah, it, it, it a, just had a beautiful vibe to it. Yeah, he it, was uh, a nightmare backstage. He was an absolute nightmare backstage. He just <laughs> would not stop pacing. And he gets so, he got annoyed about with my energy because I'm a performer. So I'm like pacing and bouncing around and doing warm ups and like, dad, let's go. And he's like, he was so irritable. But then you get him on stage and you put a drink in his hand and he just opens up. I think if you go back and watch dad's first press appearances, I think our first was we were on Studio 10 for the launch of Loose Units, the book. And he was just so reserved. He just didn't, you know, he, he didn't know how to react. But now he knows what he sounds like. He knows what he looks like on camera. He knows what, he, he knows, because one of the only ways to get good as a performer is to give yourself notes uh, and finally, after all these years we've been doing this, Dad's actually started to kind of take this stuff seriously. So we've got good audio equipment, and he will he'll, he'll get halfway through a, through a line, mess it up, and then stop and go, I'm going to do that again. Which is, I'm so proud, because I spent years in radio, and it took me a long time to get that. And I didn't even have to tell him to do it. He just intuited it. So, I, I you know, I, I think he's a natural. I really do. And I'm so proud of yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would say he's a natural as well. That being his, uh, his very first live show. Yeah. Unbelievable. Now, um, I have to inquire, apart from Barney and I, uh, has anyone ever asked you and your dad to sign their boobs? Uh, yes. Uh, wait. I can... uh, no? <laughs> no. Please, please tell us we were at least the first people, or did no, someone you... on that first night get there first? You were the first. Um, <laughs> you, you remain the only ones who've actually done that. Um, but, oh, hang on. Uh, no, yes, you are the only ones. We, we've had... We've had some people ask us to sign stuff, and then they were then they joked about getting it tattooed on themselves. That was pretty. That was pretty intense. Um, I don't know whether I, I endorse a loose units tattoo. Um, I mean, like, there's, there's got to be better things to get tattooed on yourself, you know. Uh, but <laughs> no, honestly speaking, like the, the the meet and greets after the live shows are great. The fans are amazing. 
Um, our listeners are really lovely people and it's been really nice to have because, I mean, people who listen to Loose, uh, Loose Units, the podcast, and people who listen to true crime podcasts aren't necessarily the same people that read books about crime. Like It's a different audience. So it's been really nice having Electric Blue bring new people into the fold and vice versa. Um, there's a bunch of people who didn't realize that the book uh, and the podcast were different things. I think some podcasts release books that are sort of just, I don't know, like just kind of easy tie-ins, like some sort of kind of just, you know, like an addendum to it. Whereas this is, I mean, the podcast exists because it's a spin-off of the book and not the other way around. So it's really nice to have critics review the book and then halfway through the review, listen to the podcast and you go, oh shit, this is a thing already. This is like a, this is a thing. We're stepping into some kind of existing property. Uh, so yeah, it's been really nice having, honestly, I, we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for the, for the listeners really and the readers. We just wouldn't be doing it. Well, yeah. Well, if you did, you'd just be like doing it yourselves. Yep. <laughs> it'd be a bit weird. But um, yeah. you've been, you've, you'd go big guns here, man. You've got tons of listeners and tons of readers, which is wonderful. Um, where can listeners uh, get their hands or ears on your books or audio books? Uh, okay, so Electric Blue is available, I believe, literally everywhere. I mean, it's it's available around the world, but in Australia, I would recommend Booktopia. I think Booktopia is a great place to get it. Um, you can buy the audiobook, which also features Dad in um, a weird cameo. So the audiobook's available everywhere you can get audiobooks. So Audible, Amazon, iTunes, everywhere. Um, the book is in bookstores. If you haven't already got a copy um, and you want to kind of pester your local bookstore and tell them to get it, that's a great thing to do. And if you've read it <laughs> and if you like it, please let me know what you think because I am a, I am, I am an egotist and I need to know whether you like it or not. And, uh, you know, feel free to head across to Goodreads and leave us a review, I guess. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really been a wonderful process to write something and basically ambush Dad with it. He got his copy about a week before it hit uh, bookstores. He hadn't oh, read it. Wow. He did. He didn't even know what was in it really, because it was a complete reinterpretation of cases from the podcast. Were you and, nervous about how he would react to it? Uh, he's a very loving guy, so I'm sure he would have phrased it very delicately if he didn't like it. But he's on his second read through now, and Dad is not a reader, so if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. Um, I also have to ask. There's a famous film director who has the same name as you. Uh, yes. Do any of his fans accidentally tweet you to tell you how much they love the movie Showgirls? Yes. Uh, although it's not fans, <laughs> uh, it's basically weird European film journals who whenever he, uh, he releases a new film, I get people tweeting at me in Dutch congratulating me. So, yeah. Although if, if you're listening, the other Paul Verhoeven... Please. Oh, yeah, he's one of our patrons, actually. It wouldn't surprise me. Please, if he is listening, please get in touch and uh, give me money because I know how rich you are. Thank you so much for coming on the show and letting us know about your books and your podcast. Oh, my, my absolute pleasure. Um, and if you need anything else signed, uh, we'll have to wait until the next live show. Cause... Well, thanks, Tara. That was Paul Verhoeven talking about his new book, Loose Units, Electric Blue, the details of which will be in the show notes. Isn't he great? I like his mustache. Oh, it's it's quite majestic, I got to say. Um, but yeah, it's correct. Paul's fantastic, and we will definitely be there at their next Melbourne live show. If you ever get a chance to uh, to see them live, it's very much worth it. When the powers that be let us, anyway. Yeah, God, if at this point, if the powers that be ever let us. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website bloodymurderpodcast.com for instructions on how to contribute. Hey, Tara. Now I have a question for you. 
Yes, Barney? What is Aussie Az? Aussie Az are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. Well, this one's definitely got uh, only the criminal stupidity in it. A fancy private school in the upmarket New South Wales suburb of North Sydney was getting a lot of bad press this week due to the Year 12 Muck-Up Day Challenge. For our overseas listeners, Year 12 is the final year of high school in Australia and students are usually aged around 17 or 18. Muck-Up Day happens on the last day of school in a lot of countries. Here it usually consists of covering stair rails in Vegemite, spraying shaving cream at people, throwing water balloons... And at the first high school I attended, nailing a pig's head to a science building door. Did that really happen? Yes, that did really happen. Mullumbimby High School, representing. (laughs) The school, which costs $33,000 per student a year, allows girls for the first three years. But after that point, it's boys only. And i got to say, I'm actually glad, I mean, for the girls' sake. Girls are weak, chuck them in the creek. (laughs) Dude, I want to headbutt you so bad, but we're not in the same room. Boys are strong like King Kong. Ugh, go eat a bowl of dicks. I'm sure there are probably some great kids at this school, but I'm not talking about them. Hashtag not all private school boys. So the school's website says, Established in 1889, our rich history and traditions have powerfully shaped our school, fostering a sense of community and belonging. (laughs) We focus on developing the whole person, intellectually, physically, socially, emotionally and spiritually. Spiritually, we place a strong emphasis on character formation, challenging our students to be responsible citizens of integrity who seek to serve the wider community. (laughs) (laughs) You like that? According to news.com.au, earlier this week, it emerged that Year 12 students at the Ritzy North Sydney School had devised a scavenger hunt dubbed the Tri-Wizard Shornament, which included a range of illegal activities. They also posted a full list of the challenges after they were leaked on social media. They range from vaguely amusing to violent, racist, misogynistic, illegal and revolting. Also, you need to picture these guys in their little Lord Fauntleroy-like uniforms of a grey suit, a striped tie and a straw booter hat while they're doing this stuff, okay? So students were told to break up into groups of five or six and compete for points in the scavenger hunt. They were supposed to supply evidence of themselves doing the challenges to a private Instagram account and the winners were to receive prize money. The 20-point level started off pretty innocuous with challenges like wax your armpit hair and shoey a whole beer, but then it got darker. Uh, Challenges included, and I quote, shit on a public toilet seat, get with a belowy, that's a younger student, get with an Asian chick and sack whack a complete random walking past. I don't care that their uniforms make them look like ventriloquist dummies. If I get randomly sack whacked by those little fuckers, they will receive a bunny attack. Yeah, the best way to counter a sack whack is to sack whack them back. Bruce Lee said that. No, he didn't. I believe it was Emily Dickinson. Oh, actually, you're right about that. The 30-point level included, and I quote, eat a live small animal, smoke your mate's pubes, and get with a lesbian. Like a lesbian would have anything to do with these pimply little fuckwads. (laughs) 
The 40-point level featured go to a brothel and get a gay man's number. Oh, homophobia is so edgy and hilarious. Isn't it? The 50-point level included, and quoting again, send a butthole pic to a girl in our year and become a boar hunter via having sex with a woman who weighs over 80 kilograms. I was about to say there wasn't quite enough misogyny in these challenges, but I stand corrected. Yeah, well, I'm six foot one and I weigh over 80 kilograms or 12 and a half stone. I can't speak for all the other Amazonian women out there, but as if, you little dipshits. Come on. (laughs) The 100 points or more level is when the toxicity really shines. It included instructions to, and I quote, fuck a chick who is a three out of ten or lower, catch a pigeon and proceed to rip its head off, get with someone below the age of 15, and spit on a homeless person. How's that for challenging our students to be responsible citizens of integrity who seek to serve the wider community? The headmaster of the school in question has written a letter to parents telling them this is not who we are as a school and the boys involved appear to be a small number not representative of the wider year group. Now, can a small number of boys split up into groups of five or six? I wouldn't have thought so. No, me either. Now, it's not the only incident of revolting behaviour from students at this elite private school. There are also videos on TikTok of the little fancy boys disparaging people who come from poorer suburbs as all being drug addicts and thugs, as well as another video that shows some of the students of this expensive school that receives government funding boasting about their campus's luxury facilities, including a recovery pool, a Harborview library and a $50 million gym. Today, news.com.au also published an article with photographic evidence about a 2017 incident where Deputy Headmaster Rod Morrison was pictured with a group of Year 12 students who were holding a Nazi flag and posing with their arms raised in a Nazi salute. What the actual fuck? My thoughts entirely. Like, how toxic is all of that? Ugh. Ugh, I know, right? Duh. Revolting. So this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. <laughs> so thanks yet again to Extra Extra Large Historian from the United States. We've got Lil Burn 63 from also from the United States. We've got Nisi G1 from the US again. Etho93 from Australia. We'd also like to thank the brilliant Lorraine for all the work she does running the Facebook group with me. Thanks, Lorraine. Yeah. You know who else is awesome? Our patrons. We love them. We love them so much we've been holding monthly giveaways. Our September prize is a keep kicking against the pricks coffee mug. Present your worldview as you drink your coffee. Black like your soul. Like your arsehole. Like yours. For a chance to win, be a bloody murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program. So thank you to Sarah Bundy. Holly and Rick Smith. Melanie Ray, Caitlin Kerr, and Deirdre Stevenson. Oh, well, like none of those names were super difficult to say, but I bet we still got them wrong. Melanie. Deirdre, (laughs) Deirdre is your middle name. Deirdre is my middle name. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink. That's my thirsty voice. Mm. There's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. 
Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcast, our IMDB listing, or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a, hey, baby, would still count. <laughs> and, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps protect us from random sackwack attacks. Follow us through our Facebook page or join our fantastic Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news galleries, more episodes and links to our fabulous Fredless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Yeah. Yeah, kick him. Kick him. Kick him. Give, give him a sack whack attack, man. Sack whack attack. Chewy a whole beer. Oh, I'm so edgy. Woo. I've got my little hat on. Oh. I keep going back onto Facebook and looking at those pictures of quokkas. I really like oh, quokkas. They're cool, aren't they? I love quokkas. They look so excited. I went to Rottnest Island once. Yeah, did you see some quokkas? I did. They just, they just wander around everywhere and you can just walk around the place. Did fairy. you put one in your pocket? No. But you know what? <laughs> there was some talk of some school kids that had been there the, the, like a few weeks earlier and they were playing quokka soccer. Oh, no. No, no, no. I don't know if it was a myth, but that's just awful. Don't oh, kick you know what? They were probably kids. those kids from the school I was talking about. They probably were. <laughs> <laughs> They'd do it. Yeah, they oh do it. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Just because no. something rhymes doesn't mean you should do it. Yeah. If someone kicks a, a quokka, I will end them. Yeah, absolutely. I'll help you. Yeah. Yeah, I'll ridicule them first. That'll show them. Yeah, I had um, I had a cappuccino before, and I had all this froth on on the end of my nose. <laughs> Barney the froth nose reindeer. And Trey Trey said, "Did you grow a wart while I wasn't looking?" And I said, "You gave." Yeah. And I said, "You gave it to me, you bog witch." <laughs> and she said, "I'm not a bog witch. I'm a stoop crone." Ray thought to himself as he got in his car, I already have a house, but who couldn't do with another one? He can keep all his jet skis in it. <clears throat> I'd like another house to store my hats in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that'd be nice. Barney's hat house. It'd probably be fancier than the house you live in, wouldn't it? And there'd have to, there'd have to be lots of fake heads everywhere to put the hats on. Oh, well, why go with fake heads when you can get real ones? <laughs> real heads. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bunch of people standing in there. Yeah. <laughs> with my th- you could let people live there as long as they wore your hats. But they had to have the same size head as me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, all of the people who live in the Barney hat house and, and wear your hats look like you. Wow. It's like that scene in Being John Malkovich where he enters his own portal. Right. <laughs> but there are more hats. Yeah. Hey, Trilby, go to the fridge and get me a beer. <laughs> Because I'd have to call them by what hat they were wearing. Yeah, no, I get uh, it. Panama, over here. My back needs a scratching. <laughs> Much like Barney's moustache was still correct. Yep, your beat is correct, your moustache is correct. Rest of you's kind of wrong, but you know, you've got that. Oh, oh <laughs> shots fired up across my bow. Cannonball, <laughs> hey? Right. Get me back. It's your turn to insult me now. Come on. Oh, uh, There's a lot to work with. <laughs> no, no, no. No, you know what it is? You're spoiled for choice. You've just got so many zingers coming at you at once that you just can't even get one of them out. Uh, it's because you're too brilliant. 
So you're a skinny bitch now, are you? Oh, you know what? I thought I was, but then I actually, um, I was at the chemist today and um, I got, I, this isn't the same scales that I weighed myself on last time, but the, apparently I've only lost like three kilos, but I've got like, you know, like my gut is sticking out like less than my boobs, which is something because the boobs aren't big. So I, I feel, I feel like I've lost more weight than the scale said. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, oh, but you know what? I was very brave and I didn't cry afterwards. I thought you were going to say, I was at the chemist today and the pharmacist said, here's your Panadol, you fat cunt. And that's when I knew <laughs> I hadn't lost any weight. <laughs> no, they just like, I was trying to get served and they're like, we can't, th- there's nobody there. We can't see oh. you. Why is that packet of Panadol floating in the air? Because Tara's just so thin now. Oh, yeah. You've got to run around in the shower, don't you? To get wet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could hide behind a flagpole. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Wow. <laughs> do you want, um, do you want to talk about your body some more? Um, oh, please, let's let's just cut to the chase and talk to about my no. When Ray returned, he called Steve using the code name Babe, and they arranged to meet in a nearby park. <laughs> <laughs> la la la. <laughs> <laughs> Steve was not happy. Why is this taking so long? He yelled at Ray. Uh, that was a little bit more whiny than yelly. <laughs> oh, he is kind of whine, whiny, though. Oh, no, he is kind of, but it says yelled, so. Well, that's because I wrote it. I could have well whined, he whined at Ray. Yeah, you could he he cunt punted at Ray. He farted out of his bottom <laughs> at Ray. <laughs> he mouth farted at Ray. Well, what they do with a the business they take over is they, like, they'd order heaps and heaps of booze and it'd come in the front door and then go straight out the back door to their other clubs. Oh, okay. And then they wouldn't pay any of the bills and the, and the business would just go bankrupt. That's, That's an interesting business model. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we're running this podcast, right? Pretty much. Money comes in the front door and goes out the back. <laughs> <laughs> Strawberry had told Ray that he'd worked as an informant for the DEA and FBI. This really should have rung alarm, but alarm balls. Alarm They're alarming balls. That's what they sound like. All right. <laughs> Busy with work, Mott didn't look up and said, nah, he's in the other office, and pointed down the hall to a door with the name Dick DeNoyer. <laughs> dick Denoyer. It's when you're paranoid about how big your dick is. <laughs> He's only got a nine millimeter. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, that's not good. It's not visible with the fucking naked eye, is it? Scheming Steve didn't know it yet, but he was done. In two adjoining rooms, Swiss police and FBI agents high-fived each other. There's a lot of high-fiving in this, in this episode. Yeah, I know. I, but still not quite enough to satisfy my high-fiving lust. I don't like high-fives. Yeah, you refuse to do them, except sometimes if you've had a few drinks, I can trick you by doing one and then you accidentally do it. But usually, usually you don't. I only high-five kids under 10. That's my rule. So you don't high-five Dex anymore? Nah, he's too old. <laughs> I'll do a fist bump with him, but no high fives. <laughs> okay. Look, you know, I'm not going to try and tell you how to parent. I do, Dad and I do that all the time. Um, uh, I actually spend about 30 minutes every episode editing his mouth sounds out because he has like a very, like a very like, very like wet mouth. And I just, I one time I unfortunately I do that. But too. I cut together about 10 minutes of it and sent it to him just as an isolated <laughs> file, just so that he knew how much work I do. He did not appreciate. That. Yeah. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.